Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are still working through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we'll begin in verse 38. <clears throat> Matthew 5, 38. Jesus is he's in the middle of what uh, is commonly called the antithesis, where he's, he's giving these uh, directions to people. He's clarifying. He's giving, this is what the law says. You've messed it up, and this is what I say. This is what the meaning, the heart of the law is. So you, you have heard it said, but I say. This is, a, this is the thesis, and here's the antithesis. So here in verse 38, he continues with that. It's a little bit different than the other ones in that it's a bit more prescriptive than the other ones have been so far. So far, we're talking about um, you know, anger and, and adultery and marriage and those sorts of things. You've heard it said, but I say they've been a bit more proscriptive, like don't do these things, whereas with what we're about to come to today, it's prescriptive, like when you go to your doctor and he gives you a prescription, he's telling you what you need to do. And so this is, this is a bit of a departure, kind of a, a change in his, uh, in his approach here when we come to verse 38. So let's, let's read it and, and see what he has to say. And you all, this is a very famous passage. You all know this one. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile... Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now that, that's going to be our, our anchor text this morning, that little bundle of verses. But I want to go ahead and read verses 43 through 48 as well. He continues and he says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Boy, what a tall order is that. The, the reason I wanted to go ahead and read that additional uh, block of, of text, uh, that section, is because uh, the two sections, the two, two statements that he makes, the two uh, commands that he gives us, they're very closely related, particularly in how we are to display Christ to the world through our dealings with others. And we cannot do the first section without the lens of the section, second section. Because it's very easy to turn the other cheek with a haughty attitude. Oh, right? Hit me again. I dare you. It's very easy to give someone your cloak when they try to take your, your tunic and do it with a pitiful attitude. It's very easy to go the extra mile and do it very begrudgingly. So we can't do those things in a Christ-like manner without the lens of this, that second set of texts where he says you must love your enemy. 
They're very closely related. This is the major component or one of the major components of being a disciple of Jesus Christ and building his kingdom through making disciples. We are, that's what we all are. If you're not making disciples, you're not following Christ. If we're not a disciple, we're not following Christ. He called us to be disciple-making disciples. That means that we must love one another and point them to Jesus. Is a major part of how we are to build his kingdom. It's a major part of how they see who Christ is, how they recognize Christ when he's presented to them by how we treat them and how they come to know the character of God and the forgiveness that is found in Christ and the hope of the glory that we have in Christ, which they can have too. They won't come to know it unless we present it to them. And so what Jesus has said here is pretty radical. It's radical to tell someone that when you are insulted, you should not get angry. When someone tries to take your things, you should not be defensive of it. And when someone tries to compel you to do something you don't want to do, take your liberties from you, you should just lay them down. People don't want to hear that. That's a difficult thing to hear. It's a radical thing to say. And not only does he say, you know, don't get angry, don't get even. He says, don't, don't, don't get angry, don't get even. He says, but do it willingly. Go above and beyond out of love for those who persecute you. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that uh, the rest of what Jesus has to say isn't radical. You know, everything that's come before this has been some pretty radical stuff already in his sermon. If you recall, um, he put anger in the same category as murder. (laughs) If you recall, he said just looking at someone with a a lustful thought is the same thing as committing the act of adultery. That's pretty radical. So I don't don't mean to elevate these verses above the rest of what he says in order to say that, you know, these require some kind of deeper spirituality or some kind of deeper commitment or a deeper maturity than the rest of it. That's not the point. Because none of what we have talked about over the last few weeks, none of what Jesus has talked about up until this point can be done. We we can't achieve any of this outside of the inner working and power of the Holy Spirit. It's all radical. It's all radical. The Holy Spirit is given to us to to enable us to do these things, to enable us to to keep our our lustful thoughts at bay, to enable us to to lay down our anger when we see it rising up within us. The Holy Spirit is given to us to enable us to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. He's the one who is given to sanctify and to sustain us in our good works and our obedience to God. There's nothing that we've talked about so far that any of us can do on our own. We must have Christ as our Lord and the Holy Spirit as our sustaining power. You can't do it by yourself. It's hopeless, and you're lost without Him. I will say, however, while while saying that all the other stuff is radical, right? Because Jesus is a radical guy, and that's a lot that He's asking. It's not a lot for the Holy Spirit. I will say that when I come to these verses, turn the other cheek, and give your cloak also, and go the extra mile, and love your enemies. I find that to be among some of the most difficult things that Jesus has asked me to do. Truly difficult. 
And when he said in verse 38 through 41, he says, turn the other cheek, give your cloak as well, go the extra mile. And we look at that in the context of verses 43 through 47, where he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When we do that, we are putting into full force at least five of the nine blessed things, the Beatitudes that Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with. We spent weeks on those, if you recall. Verse 5, blessed are the meek. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Verse 10, blessed are the persecuted. And verse 11, blessed when others revile you. At least five of them. You know, it's only the meek and the lonely who say, you want to take my tunic? Go ahead, here, have my cloak also. It's the merciful who endure great insult without retaliation, without returning evil for evil, or without reviling for reviling. It's the peacemakers who bear the burden of the extra mile, joyfully and willingly, in love with, with love in their hearts. <clears throat> and all of this while enduring the chisel <laughs> and the crucible of persecution and reviling. That's hard to do. Amen. Can we agree that's hard to do? Am I, am I the only one that finds that difficult when someone's ugly to me to just say, yeah, I'm, that's okay. Say what you've got to say. <laughs> it's all right. That's, that comes, the ability to do that comes from what I, I, I call serious joy. It, it's indestructible, indomitable joy. Because it's not based on what you think of me. It's not based on my possessions. It's not based on how much work I have to do or, or how, whether I have to get up out of my chair on days that I don't want to get up out of my chair. <laughs> it's not based on any of that. It's based on something that is better, a better possession. The law had been given. The law was given and it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we find that all the way back as far as Exodus. In Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25, the law says if there is harm... Now, he's talking about if, if a man strikes a woman who's pregnant. But he says if there is harm to the child, then, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's a lot of conditions there. I would say that's a lot of judgments and a lot of limitations. The command, this command, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, what it does effectively is it takes justice out of the realm of revenge, which it protects the person who commits the crime. It says, remember, vengeance is, belongs to God. That's in uh, Deuteronomy. Vengeance is mine, the Lord said. So this law takes revenge out of the disposition. When we dispose justice, it removes revenge from it. So it protects the person who committed the crime in that it says you will not be punished more than what your crime deserves. Because, you know, we tend to get really hyper-offended sometimes. And we want people to pay a lot more than what the crime may call for because of our offense. On the other side of the scale of justice, though, what it also does is it, is it removes favoritism and it protects the victim. So it says that you won't be able to commit a crime against someone and just because of who you are or how much money you have or how much influence and authority you have, you won't have to pay for your crime. 
So it, it, it basically takes favoritism and, and, and retribution, um, uh, you know, uh, revenge off the table when we're disposing justice. It was meant to ensure that we didn't have people committing crimes against others and just getting away with it. It was meant to ensure that the people who did commit the crime didn't pay more than what the crime called for. The justice or the crime or the punishment must fit the crime. You've all heard that, right? That, that comes from this text. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. We didn't make up that. God did. He gave that to us. Make the punishment fit the crime. So everyone answered to a law equally, and they answered equally to the law. The idea was that we must, the the idea wasn't to say that you must retaliate eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And that's what they turned it into. The idea wasn't to say that if someone blinds your eye, then your appropriate uh, commanded response is to go and blind them in the eye. The idea wasn't to say that if someone knocks out one of your teeth because he gets mad and punches you, that you need to go take one of his teeth as well. That's not the point. But that's how we look at it, because we, we want people to pay. We want them to feel what we feel. We want them to know that they hurt us, and that we want them to feel the pain that they caused us. Not just the pain they caused us. We want them to feel it more so. And so that wasn't the point of the law. The point of the law was to put limits on the execution of of justice. And we see this even in our our own society. This plays out. You know, if, if someone commits a crime against you, you have the option whether or not you want to press charges. You don't have to press charges. Now, sometimes it's very appropriate and it's very necessary to do that, to press charges and to, to seek justice. And sometimes, more times than not, it's appropriate to do as Jesus has said and bear the injustice. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. He said, why not just suffer the wrong? He's talking about Christians suing one another in secular courts. Why not just deal with the wrong? Why not just suffer the injustice? Why not rather just be defrauded so that you can display the love of Christ? Let me draw a distinction here, though. Uh, both Jesus and Paul in 1 Corinthians, when they're talking about this, you know, turning the other cheek and giving your cloak and going the extra mile, they're talking about personal injuries and personal attacks out of our personal relationships. We know that when Jesus says in, in these, these verses, you know, he says, uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and then he says, but I tell you, do not resist the one who is evil. We know that when he says that, he's not saying that we ought to just sit back and let evil have its day. We ought to just sit back and let evil run without any consequence or without uh, any kind of resistance. Let wickedness just reign around us. That's not what he's saying. And we know that he's not saying this because what we saw Jesus actually do against wickedness and evil. You remember he stood up against it. At one particular instance, very passionately and, and very uh, vocally, very publicly and somewhat violently when he overturned the money changer tables in the temple. So we know that there are appropriate times to stand and be firm and uncompromising, but the lens comes from those following verses, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. That's the lens that we accomplish these first few things with, through which we accomplish those things. Is it loving? 
Is it loving? Let me give you an example of, of, of when it might not be loving to turn the other cheek. And so we wouldn't turn the other cheek. Let's say you have a toddler who is uh, angry and he slaps you. Is it, is it loving to turn the other cheek? No. <laughs> we don't turn the other cheek in those situations. What do we do? We correct the toddler. Right? No. We don't act that way. You don't do that. That's wrong. What if we were to, okay, I'm sorry, here, hit me again. Then what does the toddler learn? He never, well, one thing he never learns to do is he never learns to control his anger. Amen. Right? Amen. Is that loving? No, certainly not. Certainly not. So we don't turn the other cheek with that kind of thing. But at the same time, we don't respond in those situations in anger either. That's the worst thing a parent can do in, in discipline situations is to discipline out of anger. Because that's when it gets overblown. That's when you go way beyond eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Because we're just acting out of anger. So we never respond out of anger. We respond out of love. What's loving to do? We don't turn the other cheek in that scenario, but we have to respond, right? So we respond out of the lens of love. So here's another one uh, on the other side of that. In everyday life, we're just you know, going down the street and someone cuts you off on the road. Or you're at work and someone is particularly rude to you. I used to work in customer service a long time ago, uh, back in, man, it was a long time. That was a lifetime ago. Um, but, uh, you know, you get, you get calls from people who aren't happy with the service they receive from the company that you work for, and they're very ugly to you. What's the appropriate response? Now, in a business situation, it's obvious, oh, I'm so sorry, let me fix that for you. But in a personal situation, we don't, we don't tend to do it that, that way, do we? Yeah. Right. Someone's rude to us, and what do we do? <laughs> We're going to get them. <laughs> I'm going to let them have it. You can't talk to me that way. You better not disrespect me. I'm so glad that Jesus didn't stand there as they spit in his face and put thorns on his head and ripped his beard out of his face and said, don't disrespect me. What's the appropriate Christ-like response in that scenario? Jesus said, if someone slaps you on the cheek, which in his day... That, was, that wasn't a, a physical, I mean, it was a physical attack, but it, it was much more than that. It was much more of a public insult than it was a physical attack. It's like flipping someone the middle finger these days. It was a, a, just a you know, humiliating insult to slap someone across the cheek. And Jesus says if they do that, if they insult you publicly like that, in the most humiliating way possible, then what are you supposed to do? Stand and be ready for more. Offer them the other cheek. Well, that's tough, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, we've already talked about it, but the reason why it's so difficult, and personally the reason why I find it so difficult is because I want payback. <laughs> I want them to know that they have just crossed the line. Yes. Buddy, do you know who I am? <laughs> I 
Clearly they don't, or they would not have crossed the line. And now it's my job to remind them who I am so that they know they better not cross this line in the future. Or on the other side, when it's someone close to me and what they say to me, that doesn't make me angry. It hurts. It hurts so bad. Or what they do to me, it hurts. They've betrayed me in some way, and now I want them to feel the pain I felt. I want them to know you hurt me, and this is what it felt. Do we not feel that way? Am I the only one? Surely I'm not. This is, how we, this is how we approach it. But this is, Jesus said, you, can't, you, don't, you don't need to do that because that's how the world does it. Amen. And my kingdom is different. You're not of this kingdom. You're of my kingdom. You're not citizens of this world. You're citizens of my kingdom. So we need to present his kingdom. Amen. Turn the other cheek. Go the extra mile. Boy, that, why it bothers me so much? It boils down to one thing, pride. So those commandments directly confront the pride that I have within me. Pride does not want to do those things. Pride wants to beat my chest and demand justice. You know that pride is the enemy of meekness? Remember the Beatitudes? You can't be meek and prideful. Pride is the enemy of mercy. It's impossible to dispense mercy when you're prideful, to be merciful and prideful. Pride is the enemy of peacemaking. Name one prideful person that accomplished true peace. You just can't do it. The things that Jesus spoke about here, you know, the slap on the face, the taking of the tunic and the going the extra mile, those, those weren't, it wasn't about just that. I've already said that about the slap of the face. These were great injustices that were being performed. That he was talking about. This was culturally significant words that he's saying here. The slap in the face, like I said, it was like the middle finger to someone. Suing someone to take their tunic. I want you to keep in mind, Jesus, he isn't talking about someone coming to you and robbing you or taking something from you illegally. He says they sue you. So that means they use legal means. They go through the court system and use legal means to take something legally from you. To seize your property. Amen. Now the, the tunic was uh, the inner garment that was worn. It was worn next to the skin. It's their undergarments. Okay, that was their tunic. Cheap, inexpensive undergarments. But Jesus said that if they sue you to take the cheap, inexpensive undergarment, give him your outer cloak also. Offer that to him as well. The cloak, the outer garment, much more expensive And here's the thing, the law protected the cloak. Even the poorest person, no matter what his debts were, the poorest person had a right to keep his outer cloak. That was specified in the Old Testament law, Exodus 22, 26, and 27. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, so the neighbor has voluntarily said, I pledge my cloak for this whatever debt or whatever. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. Hey, I need a plow, and I don't have, mine's broke. Can I borrow your plow? Well, I've only got one plow, and I need it too. But if you can promise me, I'll tell you what, I don't really trust that you're going to take care of my plow. So if you can pledge your cloak, I'll give you your cloak back when I get my plow back in good condition, right? 
This, that's how this, that's the scenario here, all right? And Jesus says, or the, excuse me, the law said, you can't keep the cloak past sundown. Amen. Even though that's the pledge for the plow. For that is his only covering, verse 27. And it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me about his cloak, I will hear him, for I am compassionate. And again in Deuteronomy 24, verses 12 and 13. If a poor man, if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. If he gave you his cloak as a pledge, you, you don't get to wrap yourself up in it and sleep in it. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak. And that's a blessing to you. It shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. The cloak was a right that was commanded and given by God. They cannot take your cloak. It was an inalienable right. That, should be, that word should sound familiar to you if you've had U.S. history. We have certain inalienable rights in this country, things that we hold sacred in this culture, the right to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Guess what? Their cloak was sacred. Amen. It was a sacred right to them. Amen. Inalienable. It could not be taken from them. So the fact that Jesus says, if someone tries to take your tunic, what's much cheaper less valuable, not protected garment. You should give them this inalienable, protected garment as well. The fact that he asked them to lay down their protected right is significant. Then when he talks about going the extra mile, This was a big problem for the Jews in Jesus' day. They were under Roman occupation, if you recall. And the Romans were allowed under the Roman law to conscript anyone they wanted to uh, to do hard labor. But the the guiding principle, the rule was, you you can't make him go more than a thousand paces. So most like often what would happen was that they would come to someone and say, I need, you're going to carry my pack for me, my, my equipment. And, but you could only make him go a thousand paces. For them, that was a mile. All right? So Jesus says that when they uh, command you to go a thousand paces, which means you need to carry this heavy equipment for me, then not only should you go one mile, you should go two. So you're, you're working, you're doing your stuff, and a Roman soldier comes up to you, and you have to drop what you're doing and go with him and carry his stuff no matter what it is you're involved with. We saw this with Simon the Cyrene. Do you remember that? When Jesus was walking the road to Calvary and they commanded this, they conscripted another person on the road to carry the cross of Jesus Christ because Jesus couldn't carry it any further. He had to go. The Roman soldier comes and commands you, you drop what you're doing. And they hated this. It was demeaning to them. And Jesus says, Don't just go one mile, go two. How do you overcome an oppressive situation? Peacefully. You go willingly. All of this I'm reminded of what the preacher says in Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews 10, 32 through 39, um, 
we see Jesus' words being lived out. The preacher is giving them some instruction, and he says, Guys, I want you to recall the former days when after you were enlightened. So these former days, right after you came to know Jesus, right after he made you a new creation, and you became salt and light in the world, he says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Boy, doesn't that sell it. <laughs> Come to Jesus and things are going to get real difficult for you. That you endured hard struggle with sufferings, verse 33, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. So that that, that slap in the face that Jesus spoke about, that's what, that's what the preacher is talking about here. Publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. That's the public reproach. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. So not only were they willing to endure public reproach, that public uh, insult, but they were willing to be identified with and associated with those who were being reproached. We don't do that. I say we. Christians do that. The world doesn't do that. They don't want to be identified with someone who's a pariah. Someone who's been reproached. We want to, they're like, they're outcast, you know. But Paul says you were, the preacher says you were willing to be identified with those people. Verse 34, for you had compassion on those in prison, you know, those guys who had been jailed for uh, their faith and reviled for their faith. It says you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Now that's, that's the second thing that Jesus said. If someone sues you to take your tunic, offer him your cloak also. Joyfully accepting the plundering of your property. And here's the, here's the kicker. Here's the, the juice, the secret sauce that makes all of this possible. How is it that we are to be able to love people and act out of love towards them when they are hateful and abusive to us? It just, it amazes me when I see so much grandstanding and pontificating among people who call themselves Christians. Standing up for what they believe is rightfully theirs and according to the laws of our land, it is rightfully theirs. But when Jesus says to be humble, to be peacemakers, when they're hateful and abusive to us, Paul says, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Plundering, that means taking by force. You didn't give it, they came and took it from you. And you joyfully accepted it. Here, is there there more that I can do for you? I see that you have taken my, my tunic. Can I give you my cloak? Is there more that I can do for you? Here, I see that you, have, you need me to go this mile with you and stop what I'm doing, and, and let, I'm willing to do that. Can I go too with you? And when we're done with that too, is there more that I can do? How can I be a blessing to you, even though you've been so hateful to me? <laughs> 
This, here's the kicker, what comes next. Here's how we're able to love people who are hateful to us. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one, Peter calls it an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. When Peter wrote that, he was saying the exact same thing as a preacher in Hebrews. Let's, let's read it. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, this is the passage, to, uh, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. In what do we rejoice? In the fact that we have uh, an imperishable inheritance that's being kept for us in the kingdom in eternity and the fact that we have been prepared for salvation that is waiting for us. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you've read Paul's first letter to the church at Corinth, then you know that Paul speaks about laying down his rights and privileges willingly. He, he talks about how I laid these down willingly for the sake of the gospel. He, he didn't come up with that on his own, though. That wasn't a notion that Paul had by himself. That comes from what Jesus is teaching us in Matthew. And Peter says that we should rejoice even though we face trials now. Even though we face many trials and, 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 and various trials now, we should rejoice because of that greater possession. A greater possession gives us a better response. Amen. <clears throat> Even though people may revile you and insult you, even though they may take your possessions, give them freely. Because you have such a greater inheritance waiting for you. Amen. Do you remember the rich young ruler? Remember him? When, when he came and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, and, and Jesus asked him, well, well, you know what the law says. What does the law say? And he goes, well, I'm not supposed to murder anybody. I'm not supposed to cheat. I'm supposed to do, and I'll, I've done all these things. I've, I've been a good guy. And Jesus said, one thing you lack. Amen. Amen. Sell all your possessions. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. And the Bible says that he went away sad because he had great possessions and and what jesus is saying here what in in, in matthew what what the preacher is saying in hebrews what what peter said in first peter what what paul said in first corinthians is that those possessions you have here are worth nothing compared to what you have there lay it down lay it down the pride you have here in this, you, you have an inheritance that is forever in a kingdom that is forever. Amen. Amen. Well, what does it matter if they revile you here? 
Who's going to get the last word? Vengeance belongs to God. Let him have it. Everybody's going to get what's coming to him. If you are in Christ, guess what? You're going to get a crown. If you're not in Christ, you're going to get eternity and damnation. Everyone's getting what's coming to them. Let them have it by being gracious and merciful and Christ-like and friendly and giving and sacrificial and loving and all those things. Peter didn't come up with that on his own. He's, he's listening. He heard Jesus Christ say, rejoice when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things to you. He heard that. Rejoice in that. That's why he says, rejoice in this, even though you may have to suffer various trials. For great is your reward in heaven. I think I've said about all I have to say. So let's pray. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus, and I thank you once again for your word. I thank you for this time you've given us. Father, I pray that you give us strength in, the, in our lives, Father, to to respond in a way that, that glorifies you. Not only that, Lord, but that points people to you, that just points a laser light on Christ our Lord and says, look at him. Look at him. Our strength, our hope, our victory. Help us, Lord, to endure these things with love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.